0: As you realize, the Bible is full of promises that God will deliver you in times of trouble. God is our protector, our refuge, our shelter, our deliverer, and our savior. Psalm 50.15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you. That's how it's supposed to work. But can you really count on that promise? Why are there so many times when you call out in the day of trouble and he doesn't deliver you? You beg for help and things only get worse. We understand that there are times though when God allows hardship in your life to continue and he does it for various reasons, but often That seems to be the rule rather than the exception. God said to call on him in the day of trouble, and he will rescue us. But if he only answers 10% of the prayers, can we take comfort in that? The answer is yes, we can. Because what we think is that he is going to rescue us from any situation that makes us uncomfortable. Instead, he uses those situations to build us up, to edify us, to make us more conformed into the image of his son. So what does it really mean when God says that? When God says he is our savior? We see this most explicitly in the crucifixion account. And Mark is teaching us all about that. He's telling us that in our trials, let me introduce you to Jesus, the prophet. Then he says, you know what? In your trials, let me introduce you to Jesus, the Messiah. Then he says, let me introduce you to Jesus, the Son of God. Then he says, let me introduce you to Jesus the King. Now, in Mark 15, he says, let me introduce you to Jesus the Savior. He's going to teach us about some of the concepts of God saving us. The concept of God being our Savior. And for us to understand that, first of all, we need to understand all about sin. Sin is not when you just had a bad week or a weak moment. You know, you, you're filled with anxiety or fear or doubt and you're struggling with this issue or that issue. That's not necessarily sin, but it can result in sin. But that's not the sin that Scripture's talking about. Script, uh, scripture tells us that sin is something that we do. The Bible calls us transgressors and lawbreakers. The Bible actually calls us enemies of God. And that includes all men. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is something that we do. Sin is something also that we fail to do. The Bible calls it missing the mark. It's as if God made us for a certain purpose, gave us a certain standard, and we fall way short of that. We don't at all reach the mark to which God made us. To perform in the manner that he made us and to function in the manner that he made us. Sin is something we do, something we fail to do. But thirdly, sin is something that we are. We are by nature sinful. It's our inherent nature. The Bible says we are by nature sinful the children of wrath. That means our nature is so sinful that this holy, perfect, beautiful God has no natural desire toward us, but his his nature toward us is to crush us in wrath. If you would please turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 and verses 9 through 12. starting with verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. No, not one. Now jump down to verse 19. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed, closed, and all the world may be closed become accountable to God. You see, that word is a word about sin. Now, here's a word about righteousness. We've got to start with God. God is righteous. And when we say that God is righteous, we mean that he is fully good. So many of us confuse holiness and righteousness. Holiness means set apart. And so in some way, in God's righteousness, he absolutely is holy because he's set apart in his righteousness. His righteousness is what he does. Good. God cannot do anything ungood. It's not even a word, but, you know, he can't do that. But we have to understand, there is, cannot be anything ungood, improper, untrue about God. He is fully and totally righteous. As a matter of fact, he's the one that gives righteousness its definition. It comes from who he is. God has mandatory righteousness. And mandatory righteousness means that God mandates. God requires that all creatures that he has made Be righteous. He cannot let into his presence anything that violates who he is as the good one, as the proper one, as the true one. He mandates and he requires that we be righteous. As a matter of fact, if God allowed righteousness to prevail, then he himself would be unrighteous. Let's say there was a chief of police, and he willingly and knowingly allowed wickedness and evil to prevail, never did anything to try to stop it, never arrested any folks, never charged them with any crime. If that happened, you'd probably say, well, that man is an upholder of the law, but he's failing to uphold the law, which makes him unrighteous. And by saying that, you would be right. He's now himself a lawbreaker. And so would God if he did not mandate righteousness. If he did not require righteousness of all of his creatures. But also, not only is God righteous, and does God have mandatory righteousness, but I'd like to say that Jesus the man Christ Jesus is also righteous. We know as God, Jesus is righteous. But what we have to realize that he is fully and truly man, and he is fully and truly God. And in his manliness, he is also righteous. Jesus is the only human who had perfect Righteousness. No one ever walked the face of this earth who was fully acceptable in righteousness before a heavenly father, except for Jesus Christ. Well, if Jesus is the only one and God is righteous and God mandates righteousness from all of his people then what has to happen? That means that all men will suffer the wrath of God for being unrighteous. So is there any hope? Yes, there is. Everything that is needed to make you righteous in the sight of God was accomplished for you through Jesus Christ. He did that in those three hours of darkness from noon till three as he hung on the cross. That's the time and that's the place where he took our place before a true and holy righteous God. A true and holy righteous God that must condemn and punish all sin. Second Corinthians 5.21. It's a very powerful verse that ought to just pierce us with conviction, but also bring us to great joy. There it says, he made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus Christ, folks, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This text says he knew no sin. Hebrews 4.15 says Jesus is without sin. 1 John 3, 5 says, In him there is no sin. So what does the writer uh, Paul to the church of, at Corinth mean when he says he made him to be sin? What it means is that God looked upon Jesus as if he were a sinner. The thing that's often overlooked, though, God treated him as if he was a sinner. It wasn't just looking upon him and going, yeah, he's a sinner. He treated him as a sinner. He did that so God would not have to look at us and treat us as if we were sinners. Folks, what a Savior we have. On Calvary's cross, God treated his son as if he were a sinner. He was becoming our substitute, and he took our place at the judgment. And that's what's happening in these dark hours as Christ hung on the tree. I'll get to that just a little bit later, but let's go ahead and turn to our text. Our text is found in Mark chapter 15. And this morning we'll look at verses 25 through 32. Mark chapter 15, starting with verse 25. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking him among themselves with the scribes, said, He saves others. He himself, he, or himself, he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. What's described in these verses is beyond Anything we could invent or imagine. Folks, even death row criminals on their day of execution get someone to show up who is sad. The night before Ted Bundy was executed, you know what happened? His mother called him and said, You will always be my precious son. Here's one of the most diabolical serial killers. And his mother, At least let him know that she cared for him. In fact, one of the 500 people that showed up to cheer the execution said this. It's kind of sad because he was a human being. You see, there were some people who were sad that Ted Bundy was executed. But here, no one really showed up to support Jesus Christ. He was executed. No one rallied around him. Yeah, there were some women off in the distance. But for all practical purposes, he died alone. In fact, the only people who actually showed up for his execution were those who came to make fun of him. This was the sinless and perfect son of God who is being executed. No one seems to care. So why did Jesus do this? Why did he permit this? Why didn't he just put a stop to this? Only one answer. Jesus permits himself to be crucified in order that he could save sinners and give sinners access to heaven. And so if we look at verse 25 again, it says, now it was the third hour and they crucified him. The Jewish recording of the time began with the first hour, which was three o'clock or uh, six o'clock in the morning, the third hour was at nine in the morning, the sixth hour was noon, the ninth hour was three in the in the afternoon. Now, the Roman system of time didn't correspond to the Jewish system of time, and this needs to be taken into account when John says in john nineteen fourteen that Pilate turned over. Uh, turned Jesus over to the Jewish leaders at the 6th hour, which would have been 6 a.m. There's no contradiction. It's just using two ways of recording time, dependent upon what the audience was for uh, the gospel that was being written. One was Jewish and the other was Roman. I'd like you to listen to what Matthew Henry, the great commentary uh, commentator, said about this. He's, he says, quote, he was brought before Pilate about the sixth hour according to, and that's John 19, 14, according to the Roman way of reckoning, which John uses, with which our day agrees, that is at six o'clock in the morning. And then at the third hour, according to the Jews' way of reckoning, that is about nine uh about nine of the clock in the morning or soon after they nailed him to the cross, Dr. Lightfoot, who is also a commentator uh, from previous times, uh, Matthew Henry says, Dr. Lightfoot thinks the third hour here mentioned to intimidate and and uh, aggravate of the wickedness of the priests that they were here prosecuting christ to death though it was after the third hour when they ought to have been attending the service of the temple and offering the peace offerings it being the first day of the festival of unleavened bread when they were uh when there was to be a holy convocation at that t- very time when they should have been according to the duties of their their place presiding in the public devotions, they were instead here venting their malice against the Lord Jesus. Yet these were men that seemed so zealous for the temple and condemned Christ for speaking against it. Lightfoot adds this extra note. There are many who pretend to be for the church, who yet care not how seldom they go to church end quote. You see Mark as he's describing this whole this whole event, I think it's interesting that he's he's pretty uh, conservative with words. When he talks about the crucifixion, it takes us four English words, and they crucified him. In the Greek, it's just three simple words. But Mark, amazingly, doesn't elaborate on this. He gives us a lot of detail on other things that happened in connection with this, but as far as the crucifixion itself, he doesn't expand on it. There's no modifying phrases or adjectives, no further sentences, just, and they crucified him. For the original readers of this gospel, nothing more needed to be said. The one word, crucify, it immediately would have these intense images that would come to mind. There would be this intense shame Would, would be only exceeded by the intense physical agri- agony of crucifixion death by crucifixion was basically death by exhaustion it was a prolonged death once attached to the cross the victim would have to raise himself up for every breath pulling with his arms pushing with his legs for those who were simply tied to the cross they could go for days For those who had been flogged severely and for those who were nailed to the cross, death would come much more quickly. As a matter of fact, in 1968, archaeologists discovered three burial caves in northeast Jerusalem, and they found the bones uh, which give evidence of crucifixion in the first century. They've actually found a complete uh, the complete remains of a male adult. And in the right heel, there remained a four and a half inch nail. There was also a small piece of wood that had been placed between the heel and the head of the nail. And they believe that this served as sort of a washer to keep the foot secure, uh, securely fastened to the vertical beam on the cross. Both shins of this person were broken, which gives evidence to what Mark or what John records in John nineteen thirty one, that they would often break the legs in order to speed up the process. If the legs, if the victim's legs were broken, it would make it more difficult for him to raise up for a breath. And this, these details help paint how gruesome a picture this is of Christ being on the cross. His hands and his wrists were pierced with nails fastened to the horizontal beam. His feet were nailed to the vertical beam. We know that he already lost much blood. In the garden, he sweat had uh, blood uh, that came out of his sweat glands. And then he was scourged. And he had a crown of thorn pressed on his head head that caused a bleeding as well. And he was nearly naked, if not completely naked. And so there was this shame and agony of the cross. Mark doesn't give us these details about the crucifixion, but he does give us some details about the mocking and the things that were said and done. The soldiers took Jesus' personal belongings, which were the only clothes that he had that were on his back, and they cast lots to see who could have them. And of course, while they were doing this, they had no idea that they themselves were fulfilling ancient prophecy. Psalm twenty-two eighteen 18 says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's the same psalm where Jesus quotes Later on, he says, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every detail of this fulfillment of prophecy and every part of God's eternal plan was to save sinners. God the Father punished his son as if his son were the sinner. In 1 Peter 2, 24, Peter says he bore our sins in his body on the cross. The, the Greek word there is anaphero. And it means to place on oneself anything as a load to be carried. So that means that Christ carried the weight of our sins. He carried the weight as his body was sacrificed for our sins. The punishment of our sins fell completely upon him. And by the way, this was not a spur-of-the-moment thing that God did. God predetermined in his sovereign purpose and plan that he would do this to save a people to himself, that he would lay the burden, uh, the sin burden, and the guilt and the unrighteousness and the wrath and the unrighteousness of all all these people on his son, so that he could redeem a people for himself. That's why Isaiah 53.10 says, But the Lord, and that's speaking of God the Father, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. People have a hard time with that. Here written hundreds of years before Christ was even born, the prophet Isaiah was prophesying what Jesus would do for us. And he says, The Lord God the Father was pleased to crush his own son if he would render himself as a guilt offering. We must not mistake this as that God took some morbid pleasure In this, God was pleased in the plan of salvation. God was pleased to do this as a means of His ability to to provide and to free His children from their sin, to free His children from the wrath that they deserved. God was pleased that His only Son became a guilt offering. You see, in the Old Testament, when the priest would present a guilt offering, he would lay his hands on the head of a goat, and then he would pray over that goat, confessing the sins of the people. And it was as if the sins were transferred uh, from the people to the goat, and then the the goat would be sacrificed. This is a picture of Christ. Our sins were imputed unto him as he hung and died on the cross. The holy, pure, sinless Son of God was crushed because he was bring, being treated by his Father as if he was us, as if he was a sinner. He was crushed in divine wrath as if he were a liar because we are all liars. He was crushed under the divine wrath as a thief because we have stolen in our lives and we ourselves are thieves. He was crushed by the divine wrath of God as if he was an adulterer because all of us have lust in our hearts. He was crushed in divine wrath as an enemy, as a rebel, as a traitor because all of us, as we came forth from our mother's womb, speak lies and we seek our own way. We don't seek allegiance to God. This was the Lord's design, and the law required that one must endure wrath if they break the law of God. You know if Jesus was to fulfill the Father's plan and redeem the children, he had to suffer as a lawbreaker. Galatians 3:10 says, "For as many are the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. You see, you would have to keep all the things of the law all your life absolutely perfect. And if you didn't, you were cursed. And that's why Jesus hung on the cross and that was a picture of being a curse in the eyes of God. The Bible says if we violate just one commandment, we are guilty of them all. Jesus was punished as if he was guilty of the entire law of God. And in Galatians 3.13, it says Christ was has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That means to take out from under. He took us out from under the law. He took us out and he stood between us and the divine wrath of God. And he received the wrath of God that was supposed to fall on us. You know, when God punished his son during those hours, and by the way, that's sort of the dark side of Easter. Everyone likes to, you know, yes, we celebrate the resurrection, but we absolutely want to skip over everything else. We want to skip over the fact that we were wretched sinners and that apart from what Christ did, we would deserve that wrath. But here you have this gruesome scene. Jesus' body convulsing in pain and agony. The pain exceedingly greater than the physical agony of the crucifixion because he had to desert, to endure the wrath. The wrath of God has a blow that had a force of omnipotence behind it and the breath of hell within it, and he did it for us. So let us come to the cross and see the shame and glory of the cross. I pray that we don't diminish what Jesus did for us, that he indeed paid it all. We need to live our lives in awe of what he did and rejoice that he did it for us. Follow him. Don't follow him as an employee trying to earn something from an employer. Follow him because you are a recipient of an unspeakable great gift of God. Follow him because he loved you before you loved him. Follow him because it's our joy to be with him. I read a story about Abraham Lincoln, and the story I'll tell you right off the top is probably more legendary than factual but it's, it's a good story to try to make this point. It said that Lincoln went down to the slave block and noticed a young black girl up for auction. He moved with compassion. He bid and won her. Upon purchasing her, Lincoln told the disbelieving young girl that she was free. In her surprise, she said, what does that mean? It means you are free, he replied. Does that mean, she said, I can say whatever I want to say? Yes, my dear, you can say whatever you want to say. Does that mean I can do whatever I want to do? Yes. Does that mean I can be whatever I want to be? Yes, it means you can be whatever you want to be. Does it mean I can go wherever I want to go? Yes, you can go wherever you want to go. And the girl said with tears streaming down her face, I will go wherever you go. I have freedom. But I desire to be with you. That's how we should follow Christ. Not merely out of duty, but because, or because we're trying to earn something from him, but out of delight. Where else would you go? What else would you do? Who else would you follow? He is the Redeemer. Well, that's the first verse. Let's go to verse 26. And the inscription of his accusation was written above the king of the Jews. Now all four Gospels bring out the fact about this written inscription or notice concerning Christ on the cross. It was common to, be, to force a condemned criminal to actually wear the plaque that contained the reason for their crucifixion. And normally when the person was crucified, the Romans would place a notice that explained the reason for execution. And this notice read, the king of the Jews. Matthew says this notice was located above the head of Jesus Christ. John says it was put on the cross. Now the inscription that was nailed to the cross has some various slight variations. And Matthew it says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark says, the king of the Jews. Luke says, this is the king of the Jews. John says, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And each of these readings in the, in the Greek, the phrase, the king of the Jews, is identical. But listen to what John says in John nineteen twenty. Because John brings some clarification to this. It says, Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, which explains the slight variation The chief priest did not want Pilate to write that Jesus was the king of the Jews. Remember, Pilate had asked Christ if he was king of the Jews, and he says, yes, it is as you say. I am the king of the Jews. But remember, the Jews hated that the religious leaders would have rather had him say, he said or claimed he was the king of the Jews. They didn't want him that to be a statement of fact. They wanted it to be a statement that was like, well, that's at least what he says. But you know what? Pilate wasn't about to change it. The religious leaders had just won a victory over Pilate. They got their way. And so... Pilate and the leaders were always pushing back at each other in contentious arguments. And they would take whatever jab they could. And so this was Pilate's way of getting back at them. The authorities say, this is your king, a humble, weak, dying, shameful king, king of the Jews. That's basically what Pilate was saying to these religious leaders. There's your king. Look at how pitiful. Continuing with verses 27 and 28, it says, With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. You see, two robbers were crucified at the same time as Jesus. And the the term here, robbers, indicates that they did illegal thing for money or for goods. And there's a debate whether or not they were just outlaws who stole things or insurrectionists who tried to get people to turn against Rome. Well, I think Luke brings a little clarity to that. In Luke 23, 39, he uses the word... Uh, the, the Greek word kargogos, uh, and it it describes the fact that they did violent things. What we do know is that these were two lawbreakers who were violent criminals, who were being crucified right with Jesus Christ, with Christ being in the middle of these guys, one to the right, one to the left. And the thing that we we realize here is that when they did that, normally the worst criminal was put in the middle. There's no symbol more instantly recognized throughout the world than if you put up three crosses. Everyone knows what that is. What they do know is that they are grouping Jesus Christ with these evil men, and by the way, they didn't crucify robbers. They didn't crucify people for just robbery. That word kagoras can refer to a range of crimes. Most capital crimes didn't call for crucifixion, so this had to been pretty bad. And so Jesus is lumped in with them, And this actually fulfilled Isaiah 53, 12. Now continuing in verses 29 and 30, it says, And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. That word, Aha, is the Greek word uh, and it means to interject a wonder or amazement. You 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 just thought you came up with something brilliant to answer the question. You know how that is. You can almost see the the gleam in someone's eye when they think, <laughs> "I just came up with something that's gonna shut your mouth. I just came up with something to make you be quiet." That's what these guys thought. And so they were sitting there wagging their heads. That word is the word kaneo, and it means to violently shake, to set into motion. They were wagging their heads in disagreement and disgust. And as Jesus is hanging on the tree, all in order to save sinners, sinful people are saying abusive things to, to him and shaking their heads and laughing. This group was a fickle public who at one time said, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We saw that in Mark eleven nine. 9. These were the same people who loved the fact that Jesus debated the religious leaders and shut their mouths. We saw that in Mark 12, 37. Now the same public has turned against him and actually are making fun of him. And some were saying, so you're the guy who's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in in three days. They're watching him bleed and die, grasping for breath. And they're going, you know, aren't you a strong guy? you can't even save yourself. If you were so strong, prove it. Come off that cross. What these people don't realize is that the reason that he's on the cross is to save sinners like them. If he does save himself and come off that cross, they cannot be saved. This crowd was getting a good laugh at Jesus. But notice again how much... Emphasis is put on what other people are doing around the cross and very little about what Jesus is enduring. Mark ends up opening up a little bit here, though. He's normally reserved about this. We don't know the names of these people that are coming up, wagging their heads and mocking Christ. But we do know one thing. It was a fulfillment of prophecy. Again, Psalm 22, 7 and 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. They keep mocking him and all these various ways. They mock him as a prophet. Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come off the cross. They mock him as a priest. He saves others. He cannot save himself. And in verse 31 and 32 of our text, we read even more mocking. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes, said he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. They're mocking him as king. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come off that we may see and believe. And at the end of verse 32 is the crushing blow. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. The two outlaws, crucified with Christ, also mocked him. They're hanging beside him. But I'll tell you what. Luke brings out the fact of one of the criminals, that one of them did repent. If you would please turn to Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. Luke 23 starting with verse 39. Then one of the criminals who were hang who were hanged blas, blas, blasphemed him saying, "If you are the Christ save yourself and us." But the other answering rebuked him saying, "Do you not even fear God? seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, it seems as though there's five different groups of participants that were at the cross. And I think uh, Jeff Knoblet, who is uh, actually Paul Washer's uh, pastor, I don't know if he still is, but uh, down in Mo- Muscle Shoals, he, he had five that I, I'm going to borrow here. He says, first, there was a forced unbeliever, and that was Simon of Cyrene. And as I said before, here's Simon of Cyrene. He comes uh, to Jerusalem. He doesn't really know anything about Jesus. He's maybe never even heard the name because he's from Africa. He wasn't in the region where Jesus was ministering. And and then, you know, all of a sudden he's walking down the street, wrong place at the wrong time, um, at least as he thought, but in God's providence. He was at the right, time, right place in the right time. We see that the Roman soldiers required him to carry Jesus' cross beam because Jesus couldn't carry it. He was forced into facing Jesus Christ. wasn't his choice. It just happened. Hmm. Maybe there's some of you that are here today that think the same thing. You're an unbeliever. You're hearing about Jesus Christ and you heard about him. But up to this point, you're just a forced unbeliever. Maybe you didn't want to go to church. Maybe your husband or wife nagged you. Maybe you're a child and it's your mom or dad who makes you come to church. Or maybe it's a friend pushing you. So you go, you know what? I'll go because I feel obligated. And so right now, you're a forced unbeliever, but you're hearing the gospel, and now your responsibility is even greater. You see, Simon the Cyrene was forced into being confronted with Jesus Christ. But there is a glory in this. This isn't the end of the story of Simon. In Acts chapter 11, it says, many Cyrenians are stated as those who are becoming believers in Jesus Christ. No doubt it had to do with Simon. And then in Romans 16, 13, the Bible says, Greet Rufus, outstanding in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Rufus was was Simon's son, and his mother is, of course, his wife. And so we have every confidence to believe that this one who is not looking to become a believer... Was not planning to give his life to Christ, had someone who made sure that he heard the gospel. And he probably indeed became a believer. You see, God ordained the events in Simon's life. But in some of your lives, God's ordaining your mom, your dad, your friends, your spouse, your work associates to get you to come, hear about Jesus Christ. The second person is the ignorant unbeliever. Those are represented by the soldier, the soldiers that were around. They were hardened men, they were callous men, brutal. They had no thought or heart for Christ, no love for Christ. He was just the next guy in line to be crucified and so they were ignorant. They didn't even probably know who he was. They had never heard his preaching. They, they didn't know Scripture, I'm sure, because the Scriptures were held by the Jews. And so up to this point, they were, they were ignorant. And on this day, they did one of the vilest deeds that was ever done in all of human history. They exhibited the utter depth of human depravity in crucifying the Son of God. But they were ignorant. They had not been taught of how tragic this is. They haven't been taught how wrong they are. And this morning, you're hearing that there is one who took the sin and his name is Christ. He came in love he came in the unrelenting love of God for his children. He came to bear the cross and pay the price for his sin so that you can pledge ignorance no more. You may be a forced unbeliever or you may be an ignorant believer. But by the glory of God, you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And therefore, you cannot say, no one cared about my soul. Folks, we need to show that people care about the souls of sinners. Because someone did in your life as well. The third kind is the knowledgeable unbeliever. The knowledgeable unbeliever represented by the robbers who were crucified with him the last part of 32 tells us that they were both hurling insults at him their wicked hearts perceived Jesus's uh right life that he had a righteous holy life but then one of them saw the contrast saw the fact that he was indeed unholy and condemned Folks, so many times the gospel starts in modern age. Let me tell you, Jesus loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. We need to start with the law, with the fact that they are under condemnation and the wrath of God is upon them. We need to start with how dark the future is for them apart from Christ. And then tell them the one, you can't do anything to save yourself but there's one that not only could and did pay the price for you. We need to start there. We need to start with the judgment that they are under. These men, they saw that Christ was being judged in an unjust manner, that he was sinless, spotless, but he was doing it so that you could have your sins imputed to him. You know, the beauty of all of this is that we saw in Luke 23 that one of those robbers, he was made alive spiritually. His eyes were opened, his ears were unstopped. And he became a repenter and a believer. And immediately, what did he do? He evangelized. Hey, friend, we're getting what we deserve. This man has done nothing. How'd that happen? The Holy Spirit made him alive. He was able to grasp And have that knowledge that God is his only help and Savior. The thief thief on the cross could do nothing but repent and believe. And Jesus says, it's all you need. Let's go to paradise. You and I today. Fourth, they're fickle unbelievers. We see that all the time in our culture, don't we? All those people who are passerbys who are just willing to get in on a good blaspheming that word blaspheme is actually blasphemeo and it means to speak with reproach or uh, revile or speak evil of Some versions say that they were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. But you know, there's always people that are willing to join in on the fray. That's how mobs start. Hey, what's going on over there? Well, it looks fun. Let's go ahead and do it. And so they're passing by, hurling abuse at him. These unbelievers, doubtlessly included, so many of those who were in Judea and in Galilee. They saw the miracles. They received his healings. They ate the miraculous food he provided. And they loved him for that. But now, now he's doing nothing to appease their fleshly wants and desires. Now he's hanging on a cross. And this is spiritual work. And they're not spiritual. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned. They have no clue what's going on. And that's the way so many people are today. Put on a circus in the church and they'll show up. Have a lot of fun in the church and they'll show up. Put on a picnic or carnival. So many are like this today. Make the church worldly, and I'm in. I'll attend the church if it's fun. Put on a circus and show me a good time. If you think that, you're lost and you're an unbeliever. You need to come to Christ. You need to say... I'll take Christ. I'll believe on Christ. I'll embrace Christ as both my Savior and my Lord because I need his forgiveness. I need someone who tells me that I'm to live a glorious, holy life I need someone to tell me how to conduct my life. We don't need carnival churches. And you know what happens? You have a church that's not a carnival churches and this probably happened to many of you. You get into a church that actually preaches and teaches the truth. These other people in these other churches will go, oh, I don't know what you're into. Let me tell you what I'm into. I'm into God's word. I'm into living according to his word. I'm into being separated, separated from the world and coming on to Christ. The last category of person is the religious unbeliever. And that's represented by the religious leaders. Remember in verse 31, you know, they said uh, well, if he can save himself, if he can fix himself from being up on the cross, we'll believe on him. Liars. Liars. Liars there's no way they were going to believe upon him. This happens to all religious people. Let me give you a few. The religious Baptists, the religious Methodists, the religious Assembly of God, the religious Pentecostals, the Lutherans, the Catholics, Presbyterians, the Episcopalians, and yes, the non-denominationalists. doesn't matter what ilk you're from. Here's what happens. You have your religion. You're comfortable in your religion. You control your religion. It's what you want to do. It's what you've chosen to do. It's what your forefathers have chosen to do. And nobody's going to shake you from the comfort. I'll tell you what. Jesus came into this world to shake everything including your false hope and religion a lot of people are unbelievers because they're inoculating them, themselves with a narcotic of being becoming religious but they'll never come to repentance of sin and trust in christ and christ alone for their salvation because they are religious unbelievers so many people they'll come into this church and say you know what at my other church this is what we used to do great if that works great but if you like that so much why are you here and not where you were well the people well you know what Sort of like the mom who says, You know, my son, he'd be okay if he wasn't hanging around the wrong crowd. How do you know your son wasn't the wrong crowd? Never hear that. And that's what these religious leaders are doing. You need to come to Christ and receive him as he is. Don't try to make him like you. But let me tell you, in Acts 6-7, we see the grace of God poured out on these religious leaders. And there, you know what it says? And the word of God kept spreading and a great many of who? Of righteous persons? No, of priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Many of these people were coming to the faith. Even these hardened, callous, religious hypocrites who helped nail Christ to the cross, they became believers in Jesus Christ. How many look at all of these groups and go, well, you know what? I want I want to pick out the best. No, they're all sinners, every single one of them. Don't stop. Don't stop taking the gospel to any of these people. Don't stop. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that Jesus saves sinners, all kinds of sinners. As a matter of fact, that's the only kind of people he saves. Maybe you're a religious unbeliever, a pretender. Well, today you need to know Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and believe. Believe. But why did God the Father send his son? His only son? The Apostle Paul answers that. If you'd please turn to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Here it says, but God demonstrates... His own love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. Folks, He did that for us. And if you're willing to believe upon Him, Repent of your sin. You will be saved. And you will join him in the glory of heaven forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this marvelous passage of Scripture. The passage that puts the crucifixion of Christ in terms that are so plain and clear. I thank you for this Powerful and yet simple narrative. It is such a privilege that we have to share this message with those who are not saved, those who may not know the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would never, ever, ever look at anyone as be uh, too far gone, that they just give up hope on someone because they didn't follow whatever rules there were, that there is always, even the most vile offender, the ability for them to be saved through the blood of Jesus Christ. We cannot out-sin the grace of God. Help us remember that as we take the gospel to even the most vile And we do thank you for full forgiveness that we ourselves have in Christ our Lord. And we pray this all in his most precious and glorious and majestic name. Amen.